conversation. Let the way be open. Well, good evening and welcome, friends, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, whether you're across town or across the globe. So nice to be with you tonight, and I appreciate your time. I know you have so many choices when it comes to where to put your attention and your focus. Uh, I wanted to remind you, uh, if you uh, haven't discovered them yet, uh, I had a few special episodes in the last 10 days or so. Uh, One was on Earth Day. Uh, It was a special last Friday, and the other was a special episode last night on the topic of how the lack of journalistic integrity is actually domination. And if that sounds like a strange word to use to describe our society, you can put it in this context. Does your everyday life feel as if it's being dominated, perhaps by your employer exploiting you or the government not allowing you to vote or because you can't get a job um, and, uh, you know, maybe uh, because you're making 76 uh, cents on the dollar uh, here in patriarchy if you're a woman or less if you're um, – you know, brown-skinned or black-skinned woman? Uh, Is religion dominating your life because they're shaming your choice of a lover or uh, your sexual identity? Are you living under oppression? Or are you living in partnership where you are free to live your life in joy, freedom, and without the pressure to conform? Well, if this sounds interesting to you, uh, you want to hear more about the difference between a dominator society and a partnership society and uh, find out where in that spectrum your life falls, because it is a spectrum. It's not 100% either or. Check out Rianne Eisler's books, Chalice and the Blade, The Partnership Way, or The Power of Partnership, um, or go to her website, the Center for Partnership Studies. Um, she's been a mentor of mine for a long time, and I just successfully completed two of her courses, deepening my awareness of what it means to live in partnership and how important it is that we strive um, uh, you know, to practice caring economics and democratic socialism rather than dominator capitalism. Well, if you're new to the show, I'm your longtime host here at Voices of the Sacred Feminine at Blog Talk Radio for a decade now. So there is an incredible array of archives uh, for your perusal. I'm also the author of three books and an anthology. Uh, my three books are Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, 
Walking Ancient Paths, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth, and Goddess Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology. Yes, that means the goddess sets you free. I also compiled the anthology based on this radio show called Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World. I have folks in there from Starhawk to Noam Chomsky, Barbara Walkers to Charles Eisenstein. I also had the honor uh, of being the, in the important film, Femme, Women Healing the World. You can find uh, them all in the usual places, but I always appreciate it when uh, you get copies of the book and DVD if uh, you're looking for one for yourself. I appreciate it when you get them directly from my website, KarenTate.com, rather than Amazon getting the biggest cut of the pie. Yep, monopolies, those are domination too. Whether we're talking companies like Amazon or Verizon or Time Warner or the banks that control all the wealth, yes, they give us fewer choices, leaving us at their mercy in terms of pricing, options, and service. Well, I hope you caught... um, uh, my two interviews that I did Sunday, uh, links are on my Facebook page if you miss them. Uh, you have to scroll down past the Bernie posts, though, uh, and get to uh, Sunday. Uh, I was on with Lynn on Prairie Land Pagan Radio, and then I was also on with Raven Wings uh, on her show called Walking a Crooked Path. Uh, so if you'd like to hear me being interviewed, uh, you can. Then on May 5th, uh, I'm actually going to be on the X-Zone. Now, that was kind of a coup because that's, uh, that's pretty huge. And um, a more diverse audience, I think, to bring these ideas of the sacred feminine to. So I'm uh, extraordinarily excited about that one. And um, as I said, some of these links are or will be on my Facebook page if you want to listen. And I want to give a shout out to the wonderful UK magazine called Spirit and Destiny. Spirit and Destiny. I got a copy uh, just this week when they sent me some issues because uh, some of my work was featured in it. Um, It's such a delightful magazine, and I was so happy to see that uh, they ran an entire page with color photos talking about Isis as my mentor. Uh, My face is even in it. And uh, the other uh, is uh, my tips on how to form a goddess circle. Yeah, um, one was uh, the March issue, the other was the May issue of Spirit and Destiny. And um, it's nice that my UK listeners have such a a great magazine uh, as that. Now, here in the U.S., uh, we have uh, Sage Woman magazine. Uh, And if you haven't yet discovered it, please uh, take advantage of the free offer they've extended, especially to my listeners. You know, you may or may not know about Sage Woman, but it celebrates the goddess and every woman, and it has been doing that for three decades. Um, Sage Woman, um, you know, brings the wisdom of women's spirituality, they say, to over 10,000 women uh, with every issue, which is 88 pages uh, thick and rich. Uh, You can reach them uh, for a free copy of their magazine, uh, either by calling them on the phone at uh, 888-SAGE-WOMAN, that's 888-724-3966, and mention this uh, commercial for them. Um, I guess you could call it a commercial. Uh, Or you can uh, check them out uh, online, sagewoman.com. But uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. 
There are few uh, quality magazines uh, with their finger on the pulse of the goddess community uh, in the U.S. like uh, Sage Woman. And some of those, some of our old magazines uh, have either gone out of business or uh, are going out of business. I, I don't believe Circle News, uh, that wonderful uh, magazine put out so long by Selena Fox over at Circle Sanctuary, I don't think they are doing it anymore, unfortunately. And um, i got to ask, uh, did you know I am a life coach? Um, I'm being a bit more outspoken about that. You usually found that out through word of mouth, but I'm sharing that with you. Uh, I'm expanding my ability to offer life coaching uh, no matter where you are by way of using Skype. Uh, we can do an audio or a video call. Uh, you can even be having a bad hair day or talk to me while you're in your pajamas or soaking in the bathtub. Uh, it works out really well, and I'm very affordable, too. I don't offer expensive packages or outrageous hourly rates um, because I do think of this as my ministerial work and service to the community. Now, you'll want to stick with me uh, after my interview tonight. I have some very interesting things to share. Uh, I've just discovered some things I didn't know about just uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, particularly for my lady listeners out there, but no reason why the guys can't tune in too. Uh, there's something called menstrual extractions that uh, Carol Downer, I believe, has been teaching that we women should probably know about uh, as uh, Republicans go crazy trying to restrict uh, women's access to contraception and abortions. Uh, and also in the course of finding out about those, uh, I learned that Japanese women actually do seaweed abortions. Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And my roving reporter, Pat, who is home recovering from her car accident. Hey, Pat, uh, hope you are doing better, gal. Uh, well, she sent in some interesting things to share as well. Um, so don't, uh, don't go anywhere uh, until the very end of the show. And that's also when the freebies come out. <laughs> so... Uh, let's get to our interview tonight. I am so happy uh, to have with me uh, Trish Ilona. Uh, she is um, a reverend, and um, she holds her Ph.D. in literature, uh, theology, and the arts from the University of Glasgow. Her specialty is Jung and goddess, as her work examines the significance of Jungian and post-Jungian theory to the development of the Western goddess movement. Uh, during her time researching her doctoral thesis in Scotland, Reverend Ilona, um, I Iolona, sorry, was an active participating member of the Beltane Fire Society in Edinburgh, Scotland. The Beltane Fire Society publicly celebrates the holy days of Beltane and Salmon. Uh, Samhain, <laughs> um, it's spelled unusual, uh, in a, a community-performed uh, ritual. These events focus on the turning of the wheel and celebrate goddesses May Queen and then wizened crone in concert with the Green Man of Spring or the Winter King. Reverend Iolana, uh, I, I don't know why I'm struggling with that, is also an ordained pagan minister, an ordained interfaith minister, her primary research interest is in personal religious or spiritual experiences, and she approaches this from a psychodynamic perspective through a modified methodology called depth 
theology. Her research is multidisciplinary, often combining theology with an O and theology with an A, uh, phenomenology, literature, sociology, archaeology, anthropology, and analytical psychology. (laughs) Other areas of research interest include paganism, sacred sites, interfaith dialogue, multi-religious identities, religious syncretism, and religious pluralism. So you can imagine why she is the perfect guest for this show. Absolutely. So I am going to unmute her, and uh, we'll start our chat. Hi, Trish. Welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for having me on today. Oh, and my apologies. I keep murdering your name. I don't know why I'm having such a, a such an aversion to uh, to speaking uh, Eolana. <laughs> Well, you got it perfectly. That's exactly right. It's Iolana, and Hawaiian names Iolana. are notoriously difficult. <laughs> well, I, I keep looking at. I'll just call you Trish. I keep looking at the phonetic spelling, and for some reason, my my tongue is having difficulty uh, rolling out the syllables uh, uh, every time I see it. But anyway, thank you, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, you and I go back a ways. And uh, I don't know what took so long getting you on the show, but I'm glad you're here now. And uh, this is uh, quite an interesting topic, actually. Um, so your, you know, your thesis, uh, Jung and the Goddess. Um, uh, tell me what uh, what made you choose that, and um, you know, what did your research uh, conclude? You know, it's kind of the alpha and the omega, isn't it? The the beginning and the end, all rolled up in one question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it wasn't uh, what I had actually intended on pursuing academically. Um, I had been interested in theology and divinity from a very early age, starting about the age of 10, asking ultimate questions. And I had always thought that it would be a personal pursuit. And when I did my master's, I was looking at goddess archetypes. And that led me to Jung, but it also led me into theology. So it wasn't really a path that I had set out to walk on, but a path that was laid out before me to to track. So um, I, I wanted to look at how goddess was impacting theology. And what I found was how Jung was impacting goddess instead, uh, ah. which was very curious to me. Um, I, I hadn't turned intended to be a Jungian. Um, I had no choice though because of the material, the source material I was using, all was using Jung. So um, that kind of meant that I had to take all these different pieces of the puzzle and find out what does what role does Jung play in the goddess community and why is he so integral? Well, and, and I mean, I think that's a great place to start because, you know, um, when I started giving uh, my talk on reawakening our earliest sacred stories, one of the things that uh, I had to stop and think about was we all come to goddess from uh, from a different place, and um, we and you know there's no uh, sort of foundational uh, curriculum that um, 
you know, has us all learning the same thing. You know, it's kind of a mess and all over the place. You know, you may go through your entire life, you know, learning about how to do ritual or energetics or tarot or astrology, and maybe you never get into the feminism uh, aspects of it, you know, the Merlin Stone, the Rihanna Eisler stuff, and you may never even look at how Jung uh, influences goddess, you know. I know a lot of Wiccans who probably never go there. And uh, so, so tell us, um, what, does, what does Jung have to do with goddess? Well, um, what I found was, and you're right about the fact that the, the West, what I call the Western goddess movement encapsulates all the various faith traditions that are goddess-centered. And there are so many different paths to goddess. There, the plurality of it, the availability of having multiple understandings or multiple paths that are all accepted is something that I absolutely adore about the community. There is no one right way to do this. Um, and this is not to say that all women who connect to goddess on a conscious level are using Jungian techniques, but what I found was that it really does permeate the community and that a number of significant individuals who are prominent within the goddess community have been espousing Jungian techniques. So what I did was I took a look at five spiritual memoirs. Those were my source material for the, for the research, Karen. And what I was looking at was how did women encounter goddess? How did they process the encounter with goddess? What did they do with any cognitive dissonance that they had uh, struggling with, you know, just the concept of goddess? And the, bo- the books that I used, the source material, there were five memoirs. It's Christine Downing's 1981 book, The Goddess, Mythological Images of the Feminine. Jean Shinola Boland's 1994, Crossing to Avalon, A Woman's Midlife Pilgrimage. Sue Monk Kidd, who's best known for The Secret Life of Bees, her 1996 memoir, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, A Woman's Journey from the Christian Tradition to the Sacred Feminine. And then there was Margaret Starbird's 1998 memoir, The Goddess and the Gospels, Reclaiming the Sacred Feminine. And many of your listeners might know Margaret Starbird more from her um, very kind of uh, controversial text, The Woman with the Alabaster Jar. And then mm-hmm. lastly, I had a memoir from a Wiccan high priestess, uh, Phyllis Karat, who you might have come across. And mm-hmm. her memoir is entitled Book of Shadows, A Modern Woman's Journey into the Wisdom of Witchcraft and the Magic of Goddess. So we have in this grouping of five books two Jungians. Christine Downing and Jean Shinola Bolin were both trained Jungians. They both have gone through the Jung Center and the Institute but the other three are not. Now, Bolin, Bolin and Downing came first. And what I found was that the other three writers, Kidd and Starbird and Karat, were citing them an awful lot. They used them very much as a point of reference and understanding. But what I also found intriguing was that within this group, you've got two, one very analytical person who didn't have a faith tradition. That was Christine Downing. Jean Shinoda Bolden was a Protestant and has remained within the Christian tradition, even though she considers herself a follower of Godette. Sue Monk Kidd was a very um, 
conservative Southern Baptist. So coming across Goddess for her was a really life-altering, life-shocking thing. And she eventually left the Christian tradition for a tradition that was Goddess-centered. Margaret Starbird, like Boland, found a way to stay within the Christian tradition but still center her life around Goddess, who she images in Mary Magdalene. Now, Phyllis Carat started out as a humanist, raised by humanist parents, and she's an attorney, and she's a very analytical woman, and she also had this awakening to Goddess. And um, contrary to what you said about Wicca, she's actually a high Wiccan priestess, and she talks Mm -hmm. at great length, not only about Jung, but about the connection between Jung and quantum physics and goddess consciousness. Mm -hmm. So there's this amazing group of women who come from various faith traditions who are all using the same pathway to goddess, which is a kind of a psychodynamic pathway. They're looking at both how they're psychologically reacting to this and how it's transforming their own level of consciousness. And that's what kind of is at the center of these works. Now, this is encapsulated, and I'd love to read this little quote to you. This is from Jean Shinola Bolin's memoir, Crossing to Avalon, and this really does encapsulate what I found in these five memoirs. And Bolin writes, We must remember how and when each of us has had an experience of the goddess and felt healed and made whole by her. These are holy, sacred, timeless moments. And as numinous as they may have been, without words, they are difficult to retrieve. But when someone else speaks of a similar experience, it can evoke the memory and bring back the feelings which restore the experience. Only if we speak from the personal experience does this happen. This is why we need words for women's mysteries, which, like everything else that is of women, seems to require that one woman at a time birth what she knows. We serve as midwives to each other's consciousness. That's exactly what these authors are trying to do. So let me me ask you, are they... Um, looking at goddess as deity, archetype, ideal, all of the above, or um, how how would you um, how would you describe it? Or are they all you know? Or are, are they all different? Well, they they each take a different take on Jung. Um, some of them are far more progressive with post uh, Jungian feminist revision. Others are working with Jung in his original. Um, Jung wholeheartedly believed that Goddess was an archetype, the ultimate archetype, uh, and he was dealing strictly with it on an analytical level. And it really was Jean Shinola Bolin who crossed, the, who offered a bridge from analytic thought and theory to actual religious praxis. And she included rituals in her memoir, and she was the first one to do that, to, to actually offer a viable pathway for women to follow that was built on uh, ritual and personal experience instead of just contemplating. It was about mm-hmm. doing. And that so, made a so, big... So, so, so what you're saying is Jean Shinoda Bolin took it from um, a concept to um to the practitioner phase 
She absolutely did. And, and Jung's been accused a lot of um, creating his own religion. And I really can't fault that accusation because it is true. And I think Jean Shinola Bolin is the one who actually provided the first kind of framework for how does one do this through a Jungian path. Mm-hmm. And she offered a mix of understanding the psychology of it, but also understanding, using it to understand the amazing experiences that she was having of goddess at the time. Okay. Okay. And and now are we talking more in terms of um, understanding goddess um, as a, as a means to understand ourselves, to understand our psyches, to understand humanity, as opposed to, um, say, for instance, you know how Rianne Eisler made the jump to, um, you know, you know, you know, into activism or social justice in the sense where, you know, now it, you know, it went from chalice in the blade to partnership to caring economics. Um, I'm, right. I'm thinking. I, I'm thinking the Jung stuff is more um, what's happening in our consciousness or subconsciousness, but not really getting into the realm of activism. Well, actually, that's probably where he started, but that's not where I find his uh, his work now. Um, he started very much in the analytical and. and clung very desperately to his label and his boundary of psychology, and that's been broken now. So what Bolin did, along with others, um, she certainly wasn't the only one who was making a difference, um, but Bolin and Downing and authors like Eric Newman and E.C. Whitmont or Esther Harding in 1935, this goes back to, um, they were all looking at how does one connect with goddess? And Jung's foundation for what he called individuation, which is the wholeness of the self, which is what we all are looking to attain, and it's a lifelong path, is that we have a union with goddess, a union both consciously, physically, and spiritually with her. And that really was the central crux of his work. He understood the goddess as the center of what he called the collective unconscious, which is knowledge that everyone can tap into. And he felt it was the missing element in in the West, that we had become so far removed from our intuition and our eros knowledge, our, our empathy and our compassion and our connectivity, and that that's what we needed. And he used goddess to stir that psychologically. What has happened now is that we have people worshiping that goddess in an actual physical, ritualistic, practical way. Mm-hmm. So the idea okay. is to have union with her. And with, with Jung, the idea was that goddess was wholly imminent. She wasn't transcendent outside of ourselves. She's inside you. So that we You're all right. are goddess. We all have goddess inside of us which was, as you can understand, would be terribly empowering to the second wave of feminism and mm-hmm. to the initial bounds of the goddess movement, which is, you know, where he, is, he got his first start. Yeah, because if goddess is within you, you certainly aren't going to settle for being a second-class citizen. Absolutely. So then we've got Bolin and Downing and even Nami Goldenberg who are talking about goddess feminism 
and Jungian feminism, and that has led to certain um, levels of activism. And because of the connection with quantum physics and the fact that we're interconnected to everything around us, the plants, the trees, all living beings, is something that's very central in the goddess worship, but it's also a central tenet in quantum physics. And once we, we connect with that, then we understand that we're connected to everybody. So this has gone from being just a theory and a model to being a form of a, a, a major faith tradition that is growing in adherence on a daily basis. Right, right. And and so the initiator of all of this, we lay it at the doorstep of Jung? Well, for the ideas, we lay it at the the, the footstep of Jung. Um, the initiator, according to Jung, and certainly according to the memoirs and, and my research, is actually Goddess. Jung always <laughs> posited that Goddess was autonomous in our deep co- unconscious mind. And that she would make herself conscious and awake those she chose to awake. And I had read amazing stories in Kids, uh, Starbirds, and Karat's memoir. All three of them were what, they, what I call a reluctant pilgrim. None of them wanted to make this journey, but Goddess kept shaking them and going, wake up, wake up, I'm here. And that, you know... What do you do? You can't you can't ignore her for so long because she'll just keep grabbing you and going, "Wake up!" So yeah. it, you know, it, yeah. It, it, it's amazing because when you think of faith and you think of religion, organized religion and faith traditions, it's always a person who goes seeking that. You don't hear stories of reluctant pilgrims who are dragged kicking and screaming along a path that they don't want to be on. You know. Yeah, yeah, and I and I, I, I mean I, I think about Margaret Starbird. I know she particularly set out to debunk um I you know, I think it, she sort of set out to debunk uh I know the Mary Magdalene material and ended up becoming a believer. And um so I would assume uh I don't know, can we say that uh she became a believer in goddess too? She did. Um, Starbird is the only one, though, in my research that was working with older Jung. She didn't touch any of the feminist revision. So Starbird was working with a classical Jung that was still very gender essentialist, um, and maybe because that fit into her understanding of Christian doctrine in some ways. Um, so Starbird's using really old understandings of Jung and not what's been removed from gender and revised heavily by the feminists that have followed in Jung's footsteps. I so see. it was an interesting kind of before and after. Now, it, this may be part of the reason why Starbird had such difficulty with her awakening, and she writes very poignantly in her memoir about... She, she actually committed herself for a short period of time from a psychological breakdown. Really? And she, yeah, she suffered greatly from this awakening because she just really didn't want to admit that goddess might be a possibility when she had been trained so long within the uh, the Catholic doctrine. Yeah. So you know, there I, was, I there find was quite her... a dissonance. Sorry. Well, you know, I, I, I find her a bit of a conundrum, and maybe you've just... Uh, 
given an explanation to you know why I have found her in a, a conundrum. You know, she was the keynote speaker at uh, Gaia Fest here in Los Angeles. Uh, oh, we're talking about oh, I think they're you know maybe the late 90s even. I, I can't remember exactly now. And, and I was a, min- a minor speaker. I was, at that point, I was out there just talking about sacred sites. And um, anyway, I, uh, you know, she was, I don't know, talking about one of her most recent books or something. I, I might have been, the, the, you know, her theories on Magdalene. I, I can't even remember now. But I remember I raised my hand and I asked her, um, how did she feel um, when she when she found out that the sacred feminine had been swept beneath the rug by patriarchy? Because here she was, uh, it felt still firmly in the Christian camp. You know, it almost felt as if she was a woman pulled in two different directions. You know, um, she's she's being pulled by goddess. She's still being pulled by Christianity. Um, and maybe that was an uneasy alliance or something, uh, because I, I, I said, you know, how did you feel? You know, did, were you angry? You know, when you realized what Christianity, um, you know, had done to women, had uh, done to goddess, um, and I expected her to say yes. You know, I mean that that felt to me like the normal answer, but instead she said, no, I'm I'm sad. And as a matter of fact, she said, you know, whenever I have a new manuscript, I always let my bishop read it first and get his approval before I give it to my publisher. And I thought to myself, wow, that doesn't feel very empowered to me. But maybe that's how she reconciles her... um, you know, the, you know the uh, the two opposing forces, so to speak. Maybe you know it. It was these memoirs. When you read them again and again, you know, and obviously I've read them a thousand times over each of them, and and you, I see something new every time, and and it it went from being the story that I had to understand and be able to relay to really understanding the pieces in these women's lives and how each woman comes to goddess so very differently. And I think it was impossible for Starbird to leave Christianity. It was a choice she just could not make. And, and Kid writes very poignantly about this and says, you know, leaving Christianity, I'm not advocating for it. For me, that's what I had to do. Kid couldn't handle trying to reconcile goddess in this very patriarchal Southern Baptist church. She mm-hmm. tried shifting laterally to a different form of Protestantism that was a little bit more liberal and open-minded, and eventually she found the same thing, that she was bumping into this cognitive dissonance between her faith beliefs and what she was experiencing. So she ultimately left, and I, I don't think Starbird, you know, was ever ready to or wanted to make that move completely. Although she has moved laterally to a very more Gnostic faith tradition, um, relating all the way back to the ancient Cathars. Yeah. So she's yeah. she's definitely going to a more unorthodox sect of Christianity, but she's definitely staying within the Christian tradition. Right, right. Well, and, you know, and and there's so many women that choose to try to tinker 
um, you know, tinker with the church doctrine from within, you know. Um, you know, maybe there's something to be said for uh, women like that, their courage to uh, stay inside the the establishment and try to change it from within. You know, maybe we wouldn't have the progress that we that we have uh, in Christianity were it not for people like that. Oh, absolutely, I agree. And you know, we we hear words being bandied about like radical and reformist and. From a theological perspective, a radical is someone who leaves their tradition and then tries to change it from the outside, whereas a reformist stays and tries to fix the problems from within. And and everyone has to choose their own path. Um, and I think they're necessary. They're absolutely necessary. And it, it, in some ways, the struggle might be far more challenging staying within the system and being frustrated by the system and trying to work the system even though the system's trying to stop you. <laughs> you know, um, I myself probably would have been a reformer had I stayed within the system, but I was asked to leave at a very young age for asking all sorts of awkward questions that my Sunday school teachers <laughs> couldn't answer. <laughs> I kept so many of his troublemakers. I, I kept asking who was with God when God created the word, world because the royal we was in the Bible. And I became aware of, you know, Proverbs 8. And my Sunday school teacher was not having it. And I kept asking because I wasn't getting the right answers. And eventually said, they said, you're being disruptive. You have to leave. <laughs> and that's um, how it becomes a post-Christian. <laughs> So, so let me ask you, has, has there been any work, I, I mean, have, are there any theories on if um, you could call Jung um, a goddess devotee? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think um, one of his most well-known students is Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. and most people adore Joseph Campbell but don't realize he's a Jungian. And I, that's how I kind of found my way into Jung was through Campbell. I've always studied Campbell and loved Campbell. And I often wondered what Campbell's faith was because he skirted around the question often. And it wasn't until after his death, and he passed away here in Hawaii, and it wasn't until after his death that his family came clean and said, yes, he was a devotee of goddess. Jung um, uh. would Jung would have said the same thing. Jung called the goddess an angel of light, his angel of light. So even though he didn't want to step out of this boundary of psychology, his belief system very much was centered around a sacred feminine and a feminine form of consciousness that included interconnectivity and intuition and all those wonderful things that we consider the female gender to bring to the table. So do you think, um, you know, Jung and Campbell, uh, the world just wasn't ready yet to hear about the feminine? You know, maybe they were laying the groundwork in a sense. Um, I think they, they struck a chord with certain people that actually planted seeds. There were people writing before Campbell, and that is uh, like Eric Newman. And mm-hmm. when I had 
a great conversation with the feminist theologian um, Carol Crisp. We were talking about what her influences were. You know, who was it that inspired her in the second wave? I mean, Carol's been around. She's responsible for the for the field of feminist theology, you know, for its creation and its inception in 1971. And um, she was reading Esther Harding, and she was reading Eric Newman, and she was teaching them in her classes at Harvard, and completely unaware of the fact that they were both Jungian. Now, Carol, you know, Carol's not a Jungian, and we've had this conversation a couple times about it, uh, but Carol was teaching Jungian ideas into her courses and, and shedding light on it in, back in the 70s. So we have this gener- whole generation of feminists that were raised on Jungian ideas without understanding they were Jungian ideas. Well, would, well, then why don't you clarify that, you know, for my listeners who are, are saying, okay, well, am I one of those? How would, you know, how do you know if you are basing your goddess spirituality on Jungian ideas? Well, I think it's a matter of um, are you, what Jung was doing with what he called his path of individuation was it's a, it's a lifelong self-transformational path. The ultimate goal is to be completely at union with your dark and your light, your shadow and your light, your male and your female parts, your um, conscious and your unconscious, goddess and now God in the revisions of, of Jung, so that we're talking about a union of wholes. And this idea of holism has been around for quite a while, but it hasn't always been attributed to Jung. And what I found really interesting, kind of on a sidebar, was one of the places where I didn't expect to find Jung was in the charismatic or um, in the charismatic movement. So Jung actually permeates his way into Catholicism in the charismatic movements in Catholicism, as well as the charismatic and Pentecostal movement in Protestantism. And most people don't so even how, know that. If so you're how, looking how, for experience, it's usually Jungian-based. Say that again. If you're looking for a religious experience, it's Jungian-based? Usually it's Jungian-based, because Jung was all about the experience. So faith traditions that have built up on a tenet of experiencing the divine are building up on Jungian ideas. Well, that's sort of like, well, what could yeah, but isn't that, you know, and, and forgive me, this might just be my ignorance uh, because, you know, I don't know that much about Jung, but, you know, isn't it kind of what came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, I'm sure people were uh, trying to, um, you know, have experiences of the divine before he started talking about it. I'm, I, I must be un- misunderstanding you. Uh, well, I think here's probably where the confusion's coming in, Karen. Um, Jung was heavily influenced by Eastern mystical traditions, okay? Now, if Mm -hmm. we talk about Buddhism or we talk about Hinduism or even Shintoism, we're going to talk about the emphasis being on the individual's experience. It's not about theory. It's not about dogma. It's about the experiential element and that mystical quality and embracing the mystical quality and chasing that mystical relationship. Those things have all been lost out of Western faith tradition. 
there was a point uh. in time where Christianity, Judaism, and Islam were all very mystical. And now we have sects of Christianity, sects of Judaism, and sects of uh, Islam that are considered the mystical. We have mystical Christian mysticism. We have Kabbalah with Judaic mysticism. And, and for the uh, Muslims, it's Sufism is the mystical sect. Um, and so what Jung was complaining about was the loss of that understanding in the West, and that's what he was calling for. And he actually, let me read you a quote, and maybe this will help. He said, the development of Western philosophy during the last two centuries has succeeded in isolating the mind from its own sphere and in severing it from its primordial oneness with the universe. Man himself has ceased to be the microcosm and the edilion of the cosmos, and his anima, his goddess for young, is no longer the substantial scintilla or spark of that world soul. So mm. he talks about goddess being the flame of the world soul and the, the bringer of the world soul. And goddess is a, the larger goddess for him is what he calls the anima mundi, which is the great mother or magna mater. So Jung really okay. was creating a theology, but it was a monotheistic theology. Very much I got it. with the goddess. Okay. So so that's why he becomes such a major player. He he in a sense reintroduces the West to the idea of uh the feminine face of God to and uh to the idea of wanting that mystical union with her. Well, and to wanting that experience of her instead of you know, you've got people who are sitting in church every Sunday and they're balancing their checkbooks and they go because it's ritual and it, they, they feel like, I have to do this, but they're not experiencing anything. Jung wanted you to have that beautiful moment of awakening when you feel goddess embrace you for the first time and to live your life that way. Now with this new goddess consciousness firmly implanted, that we are all interconnected, and that we have to be compassionate and empathic and intuitive. And we have to bring mystery back to life because what else is there? Right. I mean, do yeah. we want to yeah. spend I our mean, days paying the bills or do we want to spend our days being an amazing individual? Exactly. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you the times I've said that, you know, we weren't put on this earth to – uh, you know, work for, you know, slaves to the machine, you know, <laughs> slaves Absolutely. to the man. So to we had this conversation before. Are we living to work or are we working to live? Exactly. You know? Exactly. And, and Jung talks about the important things to him were play and childlike wonder. And you're, you're talking about a man who's saying this in his 80s and 90s. And the idea that childlike wonder is the fact that we never close our mind to possibility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which we do when yeah. we grow up. We become very narrow-minded, and all of a sudden all these things that were possible when we were children no longer seem possible to us. Yeah, we throw these childish things away. You know, maybe that's – so that's why the young um, are so idealistic and the old – are decrepit and stuck in their in their conservative 
uh, their conservative ways. We see it playing out in the presidential election, don't we? Oh, we absolutely do. We absolutely do. And I think, you know, Jung was very, very forthcoming with that. This is a mindset and that, you know, it, we are as old as we feel. And I'm telling you, I refuse to grow up. My children know I'm Peter Pan and I will always be Peter Pan. And I'm <laughs> going to keep my playful side until I'm 100. And uh, I plan on living that long. You yeah, know, I it, mean, it, you know what? Yeah, I mean, uh, once the magic is gone, you know, it's like, okay, we just as well call this life over and maybe start again if we think, uh, you know, we, if if we think we can, you know, we're, we're going to be reincarnated or something, if that's in our belief right, system. Right, right, well, yeah, absolutely, and I'm not ready to call it quits yet. No, no, uh, uh, no. Neither am I. Neither am I. Um, I, I, you know, I'm I'm almost sixty, but I feel more like a millennial in my mind. You know, with with my hopefulness, with my, um, you know, willing to consider new things, um, rather than probably most people, or I know certainly my my parents at this age, you know, um, it, it, it amazes me somehow, you know, the baby boomers who have gotten so old and decrepit and just lost that sense of, I mean, the, God, they were the hippies, you know, and yeah. they, they, they yeah. lost all of that. What happened to them, you know? <laughs> um, wow. Well, I think they, they, they bought into the you have to grow up thing, you know? Yeah. Um, there, there, there is something to be said for the legacy of the Christian tenant, thou shalt put away childish things. Um, you know, that in and of itself tells you that you can only be adult if you don't do these other things. And it, it's killing off half of ourselves, half of our true nature, half of us that wants to be inquisitive and, and know more and challenge things. And it also makes you very jaded. I mean, you know, Karen, you and I have been doing this for a long time. And I, you know, when my mother originally told me that my only purpose in life was to get married and have babies, I'm of that generation (laughs) as well. You know, I have no purpose in life. Go to college, meet a man. That was it. And, you know, boy, disappointed. Didn't do that. Um, but I didn't buy into it. I've raged against the machine. I've come up against the walls. I've bashed my head into them, but I have refused to be jaded by it. And that keeps me pushed. You know, I just haven't given up. It, it, It keeps me pushing. Oh, keeps you pushing, keeps you pushing against it. Yeah, I mean, I I think that too. You know, I mean, uh, even with the election, I feel like, you know, if I if I were someone who, um, you know, I, I mean, I feel like I've been railing against the establishment. So, and I mean, and I I'm a Bernie supporter. So why in the heck would I fall in line behind the establishment? <laughs> you know, um, I I guess I I've always felt comfortable not being, um, you know, in the status quo, you know, I, I feel okay being on the outside. That doesn't, that doesn't scare me too much. You know, I don't feel the need to conform. Well, I've been a square peg in a round hole all my life and I refuse to to conform. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. And I've taught my my children to be independent as well, and, boy, there are days I want to regret that, but, you know, that being a parent. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, because now they push back against you, right? Exactly. Now I'm the man. <laughs> yeah, 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 pushing pushing up against your limits. So, all right, so let's talk a little bit more about you. Um, you call yourself uh, a adept a, a theologian. Um, what, is, yes. what does that mean? Well, you know, um, again, this wasn't something that I actually kind of went looking for, but what I realized with all the research combined with my own experiences over the decades, Karen, you know, I, there's no research, in, at least in my field, that isn't part of ethnographic because I've been a member of this community for almost three decades as well. And what I found was that faith for me and belief for me very much is a psychological event. We can talk ourselves into faith or out of faith. We can talk ourselves into belief and out of belief. And what I realized then was that um, there are things which are called psychodynamics involved, and it refers to the unconscious psychological forces that contribute. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we change our belief system? You know, um, and I think it, this isn't psychology of religion, which is a completely separate field, and boy, I wish theologians and psychology of religion people would sit down and talk because I think it's important. Um, but this is theology from a psychological perspective. So I'm, I've really kind of blazed a new trail at Glasgow, and I've been really fortunate that they allowed me to kind of blaze this new trail in trying to bring psychological understanding into theology. We can talk about belief, but unless we really understand why and how people believe, theologians are just talking at the air. You know, let's let's make it practical. Let's really look at what's happening. And that's what I've been attempting to do and will probably continue to do. So why do people believe what they believe? Or is, there's probably no one answer, right? No, there certainly isn't. You You have a host of things going on. You know, there's never one black or white, you know, side to it you have cultural heritage involved you have a faith tradition that they may or may not have been brought in that's going to play you have the friends and family and the influence of the community i think the more you learn and the wider your community becomes you expose yourself more to these um i found that obviously in abundance in scotland when i was working with the beltane fire society You've got a group of 400 performers who are coming together to celebrate the, you know, the rituals for Beltane or for Samhain. And, you know, you have people who hold PhDs to people who are clerking in stores, people who believe and follow a goddess tradition, people from other faith traditions who all come together for this one purpose because they feel called. And why do they feel called? 400 people, you've got 400 different reasons why they're there, but they're all having one amazing experience with God S at the end of it all. Right. So, Well, you, I know, uh, well, you know, for me, you know, uh, for me coming from the Bible Belt where, you know, I never even heard about God S, I've often wondered what really flipped my switch, you know, um, why suddenly was this, uh, something that appealed to me um, 100% and I never looked back. You know, it was like a slippery slope. 
And, you know, women in the community, you know, some have said the same thing. You know, uh, they've came, come to it through art. They've, um, you know, come to it from, you know, an assortment of ways. Um, I've often thought, though, uh, for, some, uh, for some of us, um, you know, just from a psychological perspective, um, I wonder if some of us are drawn uh, to goddess, um, you know, maybe because we are looking for that um, – you know, primordial, eternal, all-encompassing mother, you know, um, it, it, that that must be something that's been explored, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely, and, and I, I wholeheartedly believe that we all want a god or goddess that looks like us, you know. I mean, look at how, how the image of Jesus was transformed, not really oh, blue hair, blue eyes and, and blonde hair and you know that was a creation by the artist who wanted Jesus to look like the artist did and right, I think right. we really want a divinity that looks like us because we you know even if we don't believe in the Christian tradition we still understand the the concept of we were created in God's image so then we want to image God as we are so you know I may image God much differently than you may, or goddess, much image, much differently than you might, and ten other people might. But we're all kind of talking about the same thing, and that's the reason I love the the diversity within this movement. That your way is great, my way is great. It may not be the same two ways, but we both get there. And as to why you uh, had that flash, you know, as a Jungian, I'd have to say goddess tugged at you from the unconscious mind and said, hey, Karen, it's time to wake up. <laughs> but that's just... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I've actually thought that, quite frankly. You know, it felt uh, as if... I, I've even described it, I think, uh, in some of my writing is, you know, she was there whispering to me uh, all the while, you know, waiting for me to hear her or something, you know, something to that effect, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah. So, so I tell agree. me a little I think bit. She calls, she calls who she wants. She calls the people she needs, you know. I, I've, I've kind of been called as her troubadour, you know, and, and I knew that this path I was going to take and that I was going to sing her song and sing her praises and, and bring her message. And that's the role yeah. she wanted me, you know. And it took me a while to figure that out after she tugged at me from my unconscious mind. <laughs> You know, I've often, uh, I, you know, there was a time, uh, I, oh, I, had, I hadn't even thought about this for a long time, you're making me remember, um, that somebody, some, I, I was in a group and we were, you know, we were getting ready to, to, to start a priestess training thing and um, somebody asked me, you know, how do you, what is your relationship to goddess? And I said, well, I feel like I'm her ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I mean you know I, I mean it, it, that felt uh, you know that that felt uh, absolutely perfect to me and I, I think it still does. <laughs> yeah, well that's what we're doing. You know that's exactly what you and I are doing right now and sharing this idea with the whole world. Yeah, you yeah. Know? That's called. Well, now you have a publication called Goddess Consciousness. Um, tell you did do you want to tell us about that? Oh, um, I, uh, no, I, I speak about goddess consciousness an awful lot. And um, I have uh, <clears throat> a couple different publications that are out already. 
Um, I have a book called Literature of the Sacred Feminine that looks at the great mother archetypes and the reemergence of goddess. And then I have an a anthology that I put together called Testing the Boundaries, Self, Faith, Interpretation, and Changing Trends in Religious Studies. But I think the one I'm most proud of, and it's the one that you and I did work together on, and that was Goddess Theology, the journal, which I desperately yeah. need to resuscitate now that the Ph.D. is done. Um, and in everything, I, all my writing, I talk a lot about the, the concept of goddess consciousness. And it's a term that was coined by um, Jean Shinola Bolin, and it really does refer back to what Jung was originally trying to do, was to get people to think about what he called the eros way of knowing, <clears throat> the intuitive and the emotive and the connectivity and this very feminine way that Jung understood it as a very feminine form of consciousness and how we desperately needed that to make us whole again because he felt the very androcentric masculine form of consciousness logo, which is just rational thinking, was killing us. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. What we need, and, you know, we see living proof of this every time we look around the world right now, you know, just look around what's happening and, and how this patriarchal mindset, you know, of, of man determining everything about the earth and dominion over the earth. And, you know, so there has to be a balance. And that's what Jung was always calling for. Now, there right. are... A lot of there are a lot of people who have taken it and just gone. Well, no, it's just God asked. We don't need any of this God stuff, and they've made it very <laughs> women centric. <clears throat> and that's great if that works for them. That's great. I'm more of a holist in the fact that I envision Goddess in consort with some sort of male deity. Um, yeah. Not that not that she's sublimated by him, but. She, you know, there has to be a masculine and a feminine. I hate using gendered terms because I don't like binary dualisms, but, you know, that's how we think still is the idea of what are feminine traits and what are masculine traits. Um, right, right. And I'm looking forward well, to the day when we get beyond that and just get to human traits. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I agree with you. You know, I mean, when I first came to this and I was taught by Diane X, um, I rode that train for a little while, you know, where um, I, I only cared about goddess and I even, you know, for a time thought, you know, women were superior. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a trip, you know. It, I mean, after feeling like you're a second-class citizen or discovering that you're a second-class citizen, it's kind of a power trip to think, oh, you know, we're actually the superior, superior gender. But, you know, I think a lot of people evolve out of that. And I don't know, just my, you know, maybe it's a simplistic way of thinking, but if we are, if we do believe we're in the image of the divine, then it's pretty logical if there's only, two, you know, two, quote, genders on the planet, then, you know, you have to have a god and a goddess, <laughs> You know, um, yeah. otherwise we're do, doing the same thing that, um, you know, patriarchal religion did to us. Exactly. And, you know, with no disrespect to the matriarchal movement or those who follow the matriarchal movement, you know, that's just not the path that works for me. I have to look at the whole picture for myself. And for me, that means a union of what are considered gendered masculine and feminine traits within myself, but also yeah. within divinity. You know, yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. 
I, I don't like being put in a box. You know, I, I have this one body, but that does not make me this one thing. And I think, you know, I, I avoid labels like the plague because the minute I'm this, I can no longer be all these other amazing things. <laughs> but, you know, which is, I, I just want to dabble in it all. Um, but I, I think what, what we're seeing is when you reach that point where you come out of the goddess-centered and the goddess-focused thinking, and that's another step on this path of individuation, and that's another shift in your consciousness to understand, yes, goddess is center and first and foremost, but she's not complete without God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that, that takes her from the center of yourself or your, or your ego and puts her in the place where she needs to be within you so that you're not just following blindly, but she's guiding you from within. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Say say it again. So yeah, there there are some who who are still you know, and I went through that too. And I and you're right. It is very empowering. the the first The first step along the path is realizing how you've been used and and abused. Right. And that you know is not uh, it's it's not a pleasant journey. So when you do get your hands on this amazing power that is psychological and spiritual and emotional, it it does kind of have a tendency to make you go maybe a little bit overboard. And then you, you, you reach this point where you're like, okay, now I need to take a step back. And then you shift yet again and you move forward with a new understanding of how things are. This isn't an overnight process. This is something that's lifelong. I mean, had we had this interview yeah. 20 years ago, this would have been a different conversation for both of us. Agreed. And, and you know, in this being said, um, and, of course, this, is, this means, you know, I mean no disrespect to anybody, you know, where they are along their evolutionary path. Some people do stop there. You know, and sometimes, you know, uh, you know, women will never come out of that place of feeling like they could care less about if there are men on the planet, if there's a God in their spiritual paradigm. And, um, and if that works for them, you know, that's their business. Um, but I almost think um, that... How do I want to say this? Because I don't want to give the wrong impression. It it almost feels like they take sanctuary there in a sense. Um, you know, uh, it, it's a wonderful place to be, but it it doesn't feel like it's a reflection of the outer world. You know, um, it 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 feels like it's almost a place to hide uh, rather than you know integrate the whole. Um, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I may be misspeaking because, you know, who am I to question somebody else's view of of goddess? But you know, it. it but I tend to see the people who, um, you know, want to stay in that place of women's superiority. You know, goddess is primary. There's nothing else. Um, you know, they tend to be people who could care less if men dropped off the face of the earth. You know, maybe they've been horribly wounded. Maybe they've been molested. Maybe they can't trust, you know, the other gender. Maybe they are uh, of, of the erroneous perception that they are safe with women, you know. Does that right. make any sense? <laughs> it does. It does. And, and there's a couple of things I'd like to say about that. I think 
first of all, if you think about this process that you and I are talking about, and if we start down with this broken, this realization of our brokenness, so to speak, there's a mourning and a grieving process that goes along with that. And if you think about the stages of grief, blaming is one of them. So, you know, if this is a grieving process with recovery and wholeness at the end of it, there's going to be a period of isolation. There's going to be a period of blame. There's going to be a period of anger. And then there's going to come a period of acceptance. If you think of it that way, it's one of the stages along the path. Yeah. Does that make a little bit more sense? sense? Yeah, okay. yeah, it does. You know, and and I know it, it, this came up recently in our community when the issue of transgenders. Well, it's still a hot button issue in our community, and uh, you know, and it brought up that the whole conundrum of you know women's only space and uh, should should we be making room for men, uh, you know, so that they can learn about goddess. And you know, there were some women very firmly in the camp that. Um, uh, you know, you know that that uh, you know that even having a man in the circle so disrupts the, their energetic field. I, I mean, it. I don't know. It almost bordered on the absurd. You know, um, because it. But you know, because it's this idea. I don't know. To me, anyway, it was this idea of energetics. You know, I have known women. Um, who were so much more masculine than men, um, you know, who have a much more feminine energy. You know, I've often wondered if we could blindfold each other and go into circle, would we really know if the people around us were males or females, you know, because we all have our own energy. And, you know, what we look like on the outside or what our genitals are isn't always the that the energy that we um you know that you know that's in our aura or or the i i i think am am I making any sense you are you are, and you know I think this is where the Jungian bit comes into it because Jung talked about having these very masculine he believed originally that we needed our contrasexual difference. So for women, we had to accept our, our male side. For men, they had to accept their feminine side. So the understanding that Jungians have or Jungians practicing within this goddess tradition, which is a variety of traditions under this one umbrella, um, understand that they possess both of these within themselves. And that causes for less conflict with a masculine gender. Because right. if you have this warrior attitude and this rational attitude and this logo that is considered a masculine trait, you know, for so long, if, if we did that, you know, 20 years ago, we were called a butch or, or this or that or, you know, you're trying to mm-hmm. be a man. Whereas mm-hmm. what Jung wants us do is embrace that and say, yes, I, I have this. I can be a compassionate mother. I can be a warrior bear mama if I need to. I can stand toe-to-toe with anybody else and bark them down, and I can be intuitive and empathic. I can be all of these things. I don't have to be limited to just the empathic and the intuitive because I'm in a feminine body. Right. So I, I, you know, I struggled with this because I was always considered a tomboy, you know. Mm, and, me too. 
and you know, I, 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 I had actually, I broke up, uh, I, and a relationship ended because he said that, you know, my cojones were bigger than his and he couldn't be in a relationship <laughs> with someone or a man than he was, That's you know, funny. and I took I, that as a compliment. Walked away. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, I I always thought the boys outside uh, playing, uh, you know, playing army and playing cowboys and Indians were so much more fun than the girls inside playing with their dollies. I didn't even have a Barbie doll growing up. I just thought, oh, <laughs> it it didn't appeal to me in the yeah. least. <laughs> I have as much fun being in a goddess circle working ritual with a group of women as I do standing in a shield wall with my viking clan in in scotland and bashing swords and fighting i i can do all of it because i'm not limited because i've embraced all of those myself you were probably a sword maiden in a previous life oh i definitely was a shield maiden in another life definitely yeah that's what i meant shield maiden you should see my shield shield collection Well, I, I'll just digress for a second here. Are you watching that show Vikings on television? I absolutely love it. I think Michael Hurst has done a beautiful job with it, and especially his attention to the old Norse religion and, and the rituals. Um, you know, it's it's the side of religion that not everybody wants to think about, but at the time they were making human sacrifices. They were not the only faith tradition doing it. And I think he he didn't power – he didn't, you know – color it he presented yeah. it as it is and he's yes they've taken some liberty with the storyline of the Lothbrook family but he's done an amazing thing for people to understand the Norse tradition because I think it got very tied up in the anti-semitic Nazi kind of skinhead movement and that's not what the Norse tradition's about right you know right, it's absolutely. just the yeah. way that faith gets perverted by extremists and it, it's in all faith traditions even the pagan ones yeah, yeah, yeah. I really love that show too, and and I'm wondering where they're getting ready to go with it too, because I'm wondering if they're getting ready to wrap it up, or if they're going to take it like in take it into the future now with his sons grown up. Um, that was the, the last episode was a big surprise. I didn't expect it to jump so far into the future in five minutes. <laughs> It was quite but, a leap uh, time. And yeah, that's exactly what Michael Hurst is planning. And um, Alexander Ludwig, who plays older Bjorn now, said this is the bit he's been waiting for because Ragnar's sons were more, uh, they were far wider known than he was, and they did things that were considered greater in the sagas. So, yeah, B- Bjorn discovered the Mediterranean, and, and Ivar was was king of Dublin, and Sigurd was king of Finland, and... You know, so these boys went on to have these amazing experiences, and I'm really hoping they show them landing on the American shores. <laughs> wow. Well, good. I'm glad I brought that up because I didn't, uh, I didn't read any of that. So um, I, that was just uh, what I surmised, you know, based on the last episode. Well, and I did, you know, do a quick Wikipedia search just to see uh, if Ragnar Lothbrook was a real character, you know. But I, if they don't mention his brother Rolo. That must be one of the uh, uh, creative license that the producer. Yeah. It's exactly it. Now, Rollo is definitely a historical figure. He was the Duke of Normandy. Um, there's statues of Rollo all over France. Um, Rollo oh. was technically not Ragnar's brother, but for purposes of dramatic license, they made Rollo Ragnar's brother. 
Um, but these were all historical people who really lived. Ah, okay. And well, I didn't, I didn't realize are, Rollo was. Yeah, and the stories are chronicled in several of the Viking sagas. That's very They're cool. Brilliant. I love that. They're brilliant. Yeah. They're well written. Um, well, let's let's get back to. Uh, I, I, I'm taking you a little bit longer. Uh, do you have time for a little bit more? Or I, I know we've gone past. No, or, that's fine. It was uh, okay. All right. I just I just wanted to make sure. Um, I wanted to talk to you about being a minister. Um, you're an ordained pagan minister, but you're also an ordained interfaith minister. Um, I, was there a particular reason why you felt um, you wanted to do both? Well, um, I did. There's not a lot of pagan ministers to begin with. Um, we're a relatively new breed as far as being recognized within the faith tradition. Um, so that was really important for me because I've been working in a pagan tradition for almost 30 years now and working towards this ordination. Um, and then the idea of being um, an interfaith minister, interfaith has always been very important to me. And I, I really learned an awful lot being in Scotland. They have an amazing interfaith program there that is um, uh, nationwide. And they do some really incredible leading work um, over there. And the idea that Glasgow is this city with all these different faith traditions that really do live peacefully side by side was very curious to me, coming from a relatively... Christian community. Um, so I discovered a whole host of amazing people with various different belief systems. And when we sat down and talked, it always kind of came to the same kernel that we were all looking for the same experience. And I realized that, you know, again, there might be many paths, but we're all still looking for the same end goal, which is some sort of union with the divine. And I thought it was important that I able that I'm able to not only speak on that behalf but work on that behalf. So I felt the dual ordination was really important so that not only can I work with my pagan community, which I do in a number of capacities, but that I can also reach out and work with other faith communities and offer services to other faith communities and so they can learn about us and pagan ways as much as so that I can learn about them and, and how they do things. I, I yeah. think, you know, yeah. every day is a learning opportunity. Yeah, I mean, my experience has been most people in the, you know, the big three religions, they don't, they don't aren't aware that, uh, you know, people like me or people like you um, can be ministers. You know, they only think, you know, <laughs> There are priests and rabbis and deacons and, uh, you know, uh, whatever you, you know, ministers. Uh, if, if you're, a, you know, if, if you're a, a Jew or a Christian or, uh, you know, or Muslim, you know, or an imam or something, you know, they don't, uh, they don't realize that pagans have clergy uh, as well. It, it comes as a surprise uh, you know, to to many of them. In fact, sometimes I've had a little bit difficulty. You know, I'll, I'll say pagan minister. You know, I I almost don't know what to call myself sometimes because I know it's such a foreign uh, concept. You know, and and you can't yeah. really say priestess either. 
you know. Um, I mean, in our circles, we can say priestess, but once you get out of our circles, we can't really say priestess either and, and expect people to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, you're right, and actually I really struggled with what my title was going to be. This sounds like such a horrible first-world self-conceived problem, but, you know, you have to pick a title when you get ordained. What are you going to use? And and I didn't want to use reverend necessarily per se because of the Abrahamic connotations that would mm-hmm. come with it because automatic presumption would be, oh, well, you know, you must be a Christian minister. Um, and I put it out to my colleagues and my friends and my family and said, you know, this is what's going on. What do you think I should take as a title? And I've served in so many different capacities, and all my friends kept coming back with reverence. And I'm like, oh, I don't like mm-hmm. that. The, the definition means to be revered, and I don't want to be revered. I, I mm-hmm. just want to go out and tell my story. And it was just overwhelmingly, you know, when you look at the definition of what it is to be a minister, and to minister mm-hmm. to your community, that is mm-hmm. what I'm doing. And, yeah, you yeah. know, I finally had to acquiesce and go, all right, I'll take the reverend title. And every once in a while I get treated with a bit of reverence, and it kind of freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's the other side of it, too, you know. I mean, in our community it's not – you know, it's not so complicated. But if we, you know, like you and I who go out into the mainstream world, if we don't have a title that they recognize, they won't know what or who we are, you know. Um, I I interviewed a a woman who was, um, you know, one of the women priests, you know, who, uh, uh, who had, you know, gone offshore and, you know, did her whole ordination thing. And um, it was interesting, you know, I I found it odd that if she would have gone so far to, um, you know, follow her own path, so to speak, you know, and become a woman priest, I asked her, I said, so how do you refer to yourself, you know, and it turned out that, you know, she stuck to the term, she stuck to the label, the um, the title priest, rather than priestess. Because I specifically said, well, you know, you're a woman. Why don't you call yourself a priestess? And she said, well, you know, she thought that it was difficult enough for people to wrap their mind around the idea that she was a woman and a priest. Um, if she if she called herself priestess, she was really afraid they'd have no idea what in the world she was and wouldn't be able to identify with her. And it makes sense, you know. It does, it does. And I, I actually had that struggle because um, when I was ordained during my final confirmation, I was asked if I would take the title priest or priestess. And I said, you know, I'm half tempted to take the title priest just to bend with gender issues. <laughs> 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 That's funny. Um, so listen, um, interfaith and intrafaith, uh, explain the difference and why do you think they're so important to, um, you know, goddess spirituality? Okay, great. Um, interfaith, I-N-T-E-R, is conversations or dialogues that happen between two individuals from different faith traditions. So between a Christian and a pagan, let's say. What happens then is when you sit down and talk in an honest, open dialogue, is you can actually learn more about your own faith tradition while you're explaining it to someone else. It helps you kind of clarify where you stand and what you believe in. 
And it allows you the opportunity to hear from someone else about how they relate to their own faith tradition and how it works in their life. And I think that's hugely important, you know, especially in the climate you look at that we've got today in the United States. If more people understood the, the traditions that surround Islam or the traditions that surround the Sikh community, I mean, most Americans couldn't tell the difference between a Muslim and a Sikh. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we really could use some religious education in this country because with the education and with knowledge, we remove the fear. We won't fear our neighbor if we understand who he is. And I think that's hugely important. I think it's hugely important in creating a sense of community where you have multiple faith traditions that live in close proximity. Now, intra-faith, I-N-T-R-A, is a dialogue like you and I are having because we're both in the same community, but we have different understandings or we've had different experiences. And now you hopefully have a little bit better understanding of why I'm a Jungian and how Jung works for me and as, uh, with Goddess. And, you know, reading your books, which I've read, and listening to your interviews and speaking with you. And, you know, we've worked together so many times before that – I have a much better understanding of where you're coming from and what it is that you feel is the most important. And it also allows us to understand that there's so many paths to goddess that are all okay. You know, your mm-hmm. path was different than mine. But look, we're both in the same spot, you know, and, and yeah. no one can say your path was wrong or my path is wrong. There is mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. You know, right or way, wrong way to do this. And the that's what you learn in in trust based conversation when you sit down with someone who's in the same you know at least in the same collective you'll find a wonderful diverse understanding of who goddess is what goddess does what goddess powers how does goddess play in our lives you know and and i yeah. think it just enhances your own world and your own understanding of your faith tradition yeah, yeah, it makes total sense. Well, um, our, our our final question, and uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, so what do you think, um, you know, people who are in goddess spirituality, goddess worshipers, um, what do they contribute to the dialogue? I think there's a couple things, and, and I can do this really briefly here. First of all, by offering alternate understandings of how the divine is and how the divine functions, that's huge. You still have a, an awful lot of people out there who don't understand what goddess-centered faith traditions are all about. There still is, I think, a little bit of this hangover of this Kate Ashbury, hippy-dippy kind of thing that I'm working really hard to break and why I think it's so important that pagan studies become much more fundamental in theology and that once the academy takes it seriously, the world will take it a little bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's an important contribution. But the other thing, and I've mentioned it several times during this um, conversation today, is the plural or poly understanding of goddess. And the fact that there can be a hundred different paths for a hundred different people, and none of them are wrong. Whereas in a lot of faith traditions, especially if you look at the big three, you have a certain set way and a certain dogma and mm-hmm. a certain path. can't deviate yeah. from it. Whereas, boy, yeah, that we're one dancing, way thinking. keeping over those boundaries. You know, <laughs> we're, 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 
squiggling the lines, we're drawn outside of the lines, we're out of the box, and, and we revel in it. And I think that's a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, know I, I – I, I think that goes back to what we were maybe saying before. You know, we we're we're more the type that um, is, you know. W- w- we're not going to give up our youth. You know, we're not going to conform. You know, we're not going to be the ones stuck in a narrow little box. Um, you know, it's almost as if we're uh, – it, it keeps us forever young in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of my favorite quotes, and I believe this was attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt, I could be wrong, is well-behaved women rarely make history. And I try and remind <laughs> myself that on a daily basis, not to be too well-behaved. I know. What's the point? What's the point, right? There's no fun well, in it, Karen. I, Absolutely. <laughs> well, look, I have enjoyed having you on. Thank you for staying uh, later. Um, and uh, I, I've, I've really appreciated the conversation. It's been so informative. You did a great job. And, uh, um, it, you know, it, just just awesome. Thank you for your time. And, you know, before you go, though, please mention uh, whatever of your of your websites you want to mention. And, you know, you really should add your books to your bio. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm still learning how to ring my own bell, hon. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, tell, tell, uh, tell listeners where they can find you and uh, mention the name of your books again if, uh, you know, if, if they're available. Absolutely. Um, first of all, I'm the only, literally the only Patricia Iolana in the world. So if you were to Google my name, you'd come up only with me. Um, and I've got websites both on LinkedIn and academia.edu, and I've downloaded as much of my stuff that I can give away for free because I don't believe JSTOR should have the rights, like you said, about Amazon. You know, I want to give away as much yeah. of my research as I possibly can because it's relevant. Um, Goddess Theology, the one and only um, issue, is up on my Academia page, and it's the only page where you can download the PDF of the entire thing. And I've got loads of projects coming up. I've got six books coming out this year. Wow. (laughs) I've been a bit busy. Um, I'm contributing to several of them. Um, I've got a book coming out with a group out of uh, Open University in the U.K. called Geographies of Spirituality, which will be out later in the year, in which I've got a, a contribution called Mapping the Western Goddess Movement. And, of course, I'm going to talk about Jung and his legacy. And I've got a piece coming out in another U.K. publication about the sacred feminine consciousness. And I'm going to talk about how we get to an altered state of goddess consciousness I'm going to be working with um, the group over at Mago Books for She Rises Volume 2 and Celebrating Seasons of Goddess, and that's um, an amazing series of books by Mago. And then I'm going to be hopefully publishing a book about Beltane Fire Society and publishing their stories and how and why we come to the goddess ceremony. So well, trying and, you know, to take advantage we, we, of my downtime. <laughs> well, and, you know, and we didn't get a chance to even talk about the Beltane Fire Society. Maybe uh, maybe I'll have you back later on in the year, and we'll talk about the stuff we didn't get to. That would be lovely, and I'd love to do it. Maybe maybe we could set it up that we do it for Samhain since we're at Beltane now. 
Okay. We All can, right. Let's um, let's let's remember to connect on email and uh, uh, you know and, and put uh, you know put a date in the calendar and you know Absolutely. do the talking points and you know the whole whole Absolutely. nine yards. And well, if listen, there are any academics, if there are any academics that are out listening, I will be presenting at the American Academy of Religion conference in November. And I'm going to be presenting in the Pagan Studies Department talking about Margaret Murray and the witch thesis. Well, you are a busy lady. I tell you, I tip my hat to you. You mustn't get any sleep at night. <laughs> and you have kids. And you have kids. Yeah. How do you do it? And I'm, I'm training an ADA puppy at the moment. So, yeah, I'm a bit insane. Oh but, uh, well, you know, thank you even more for... Great, and I, I have to, you know, I'm just doing the work that I've been asked to do. So I really appreciate you giving me the time today. And, you know, I've, I've always had such a joy working with you, and I'm, I'm looking forward to our next project here. Oh, well, thank you so much. Me too. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about that soon. Well, all right then. Well, um, have, a, have a, uh, a wonderful life there uh, in paradise, and, uh, um, you know, we'll chat before you know it. Thank you, Trish. Thank you. Sending light and love to everyone. God us bless. Okay. Good night. Good night. Well, thanks to Trish for being with us tonight. And uh, before we run out of time, I promised that uh, I was going to uh, share some uh, some fun things with you. But uh, first, uh, I owe Joe Carson, a longtime supporter uh, of the show, uh, news of her book, uh, Joe Carson's uh, Celebrate Wildness. And uh, Celebrate Wildness has been reviewed and written about by Dana Corby uh, in her blog uh, called The Rantan Raven. Isn't that a cute name, The Rantan Raven? And, um, you know, Joe's book, uh, Celebrate Wildness is an incredible book, and uh, I've I've said it a few times myself. I was lucky enough to get a copy, and it is very impressive. Um, But I'll let Dana speak, uh, you know, for the book. These are Dana's words about Celebrate Wildness. She said, when people wonder aloud how the Wicca of Southern California became so much more nature-oriented and wild than the British traditions from which it arose, the one factor they don't take into account but should is feraferia. Feraferia, a word Fred Adams coined from Greek roots meaning wilderness festival, is a pagan tradition unlike any other. Based on Fred's visions of the divine feminine, the sacredness of eros, and the potential for intentional communities that truly do no harm to anything, it also draws upon themes familiar to Wiccans, such as sacred landscapes, prehistoric beliefs, and the fairy face. Fred intended that Feriferia should lead the world into a paradisal future in which freedom, eros, and play are the core values, where that built by human hands merges seamlessly into the wild and the fae romp among us. I'm getting visions of uh, the hobbits, aren't you? (laughs) Celebrate Wildness is a unique, exquisite, and profound book. It created in me a sort of homesickness, a wistfulness for the idealist I was. We all were, back when we and the world and the magic were all young and fresh. Though it's a short book at only 115 pages, it is laden with art. Uh, Don't expect to read it quickly. Take your time, let it sink into your subconscious, and what bobs up to the surface will be wondrous. 
I think that's a good way to describe this book. And if you're interested in uh, getting it, it is only $45, and that's not a bad deal for an oversized hardbound book on heavy paper with all the art in it. And uh, you just go to farafaria.org, F-E-R-A-F-E-R-A.org. Yes, indeed. Well, um, some of the I wonder if you know, this is a tidbit of information uh, for you. Um, I probably should have shared this uh, Women's History Month, you know, because there's always a dearth of information uh, to be found on women. Um, but I, I, I wonder if you ever found out that Paul Revere was not the only writer out there uh, saying the British were coming. No, in 1777, 16-year-old Sybil Ludington rode 40 miles through the night to warn militiamen of an impending British attack on Danbury, Connecticut. Although the teenager covered twice the distance that Paul Revere rode during his famous midnight ride, she remains a little-known heroine of the Revolutionary War. Her name, again, is Sybil Ludington. Sybil Ludington. Hmm. And we think we know history. They know what, we know what they want us to know, but we dig deeper, don't we? <laughs> now, uh, the other thing I was going to mention, and uh, I don't have time to get into the whole thing now, uh, but I'll I'll scratch the surface and I'll leave it to you to do a little bit of research yourself. Um, I was um, struck by the article in uh, Salon uh, online. You know, Salon is uh, uh, that website. Uh, The feminist uh, uh, Camille Paglia wrote on Hillary and abortion. And uh, I think this came out on April 22nd. Uh, You could probably find it on salon.com if you wanted to read the whole thing. Uh, But the the title of the article was Enough with the Hillary Cult. Her admirers ignore reality, dream of worshiping a queen. Uh, She said Clinton voters overlook money lust, shadowy surrogates, sociopathic policy shifts, horrific overseas record why. And um, she says, as a lifelong Democrat who will be enthusiastically voting for Bernie Sanders uh, in the Pennsylvania primary, which was uh, last night, uh, she says, I have trouble understanding the fuzzy rose filter through which Hillary fans see their champion. So much must be overlooked or discounted from Hillary's compulsive money lust and her brazen indifference to normal rules to her conspiratorial use of shadowy surrogates and her sociopathic shape-shifting and policy positions for momentary expedience. Hillary's breathtaking lack of concrete achievements or even minimal initiatives over her long public career doesn't phase her admirers or wit. They have a religious conviction of her essential goodness and blame her blank track record on diabolical sexist obstructionist. When at last week's debate, Hillary crassly blamed President Obama for the disastrous Libyan incursion that she had pushed him into, her acolytes hardly noticed. They don't give a damn about international affairs. All that matters is transgender bathrooms and instant access to abortion. I'm starting to wonder, given the increasing dysfunction of our democratic institutions, if the Hillary cult isn't perhaps registering an atavistic longing for monarchy. 
Or perhaps it's just a neo-pagan reversion to idolatry, as can be felt in the Little Italy Street Festival scene of The Godfather Part Two, where devout pedestrians pin money to the statue of San Rocco as it's carried by in procession. There was a strange analogy to that last week when Sanders supporters satirically showered Hillary's motorcade with dollar bills as she arrived at George Clooney's uh, fundraiser in Los Angeles. The gushy indulgence around Hillary and men in the Manhattan media was typified by Vanessa Friedman's New York Times piece uh, titled Hillary Clinton's Message in a Jacket after last week's debate, evidently oblivious to how she was undermining the rote sexism plank in the Clinton campaign platform, Friedman praised Hillary for playing the clothing card against Sanders. Hillary's long white jacket made her look like New York's white knight riding to the rescue. Well, gee, um, Camille Paglia says, uh, that sure wasn't my reaction. My first thought was, why is Hillary wearing a lab coat? My second was, isn't this a major gaffe reminding people of abortion clinics? My third was, the big belted look is not recommended for those broad in the beam. For all the complaints about an alleged higher scrutiny suffered by women candidates, affluent politicians like Hillary can afford glam squads of stylists in an infinite range of clothing choices, hairstyles, and cosmetic aids. Male candidates with their boring cropped hair and sober suits fade into the woodwork when the queen bee flies in. Um, there's more to this. It's, it's obviously, you know, uh, questioning uh, why it is so many of the Hillary supporters seem oblivious to the negatives of Hillary. Uh, I've run into that myself. Uh, there was a time I probably would have supported her, but I've actually um, looked more closely at her record, looked more closely at the things she supported, and, um, you know, they, they they just, you know, aren't for workers. They aren't for the middle class. Um, her... Uh, you know, her uh, corporate Dems, uh, you know, have sat by while the, uh, the the middle class has disappeared, while unions have been decimated. Um, you know, I, I think they like for us to blame it on Republicans, but, um, you know, they were there in Congress, too, and uh, they were certainly were not our champions. So, anyway, um, as part of this article, um Somebody responded to uh, Camille, and um, and that's where this idea of um, the seaweed abortions came up that I mentioned earlier uh, in the show. And it, it was interesting because uh, I hadn't heard uh, about this before, Uh but but it, it was through this comment to Camille, who wrote the con, uh, column, that this came into my awareness. And I'll just read it to you, and I'll leave it to you to do your own research. Um, Dear Camille, I read your article about abortion, and I read Naomi Wolf's essay. She spoke of bringing the God question into a woman's private decision to have an abortion. She said, I once had an abortion in Tokyo. I was living in Japan with my now ex-husband. We were on shaky ground in a new marriage for uh, the academic program he was in 
an elite Japanese language program for Westerners, was the most difficult in the world. It was also a notorious destroyer of marriages uh, because of the nonstop demands. Uh, we had discussed having children uh, later in the marriage uh, when we returned to the States. Uh, condoms can fail. We were on holiday. I got pregnant. He was not happy. He felt that we were not ready. He felt I would have to return to the States alone to get the proper prenatal care. Uh, he wanted me to get a Japanese abortion. Uh, so after soul-searching, tears, upset, and my not wishing to leave Japan and him, I am an East Asian scholar. I went to a Japanese clinic where they inserted small rods of seaweed into the cervix. These had some kind of reaction with the chemistry of the pregnancy, and the pregnancy ended. The thing was... The Japanese did not think that abortion was the taking of life because of their Buddhist belief in reincarnation. No one knew for sure when a soul that was reincarnated would enter the fetus. And if the soul could not enter one body, it would choose another to reincarnate. So one was killing uh, so one was killing the vessel of the soul, but not the soul itself. Thus, there was no guilt associated with the termination of pregnancy. It was as though there were another fetus available among the millions and millions of sentient beings. It was a karmic loss. Uh, it was a karmic loss for the mother and for the soul in transit and the eternal bus stops of existence. Um, anyway, uh, that... Um, I thought that was that was interesting, and when I brought that up to a friend of mine uh, about these uh, these Japanese seaweed abortions, which I had never heard of, she then told me about the work of Carol Downing, and there is actually something out there called um, menstrual extraction menstrual extraction. You can look it up uh, because there's a lot of talk about those now, uh, especially as more and more states, uh, red states with Republican governors and Republican-controlled Congresses uh, are making it harder and harder for women to obtain contraception uh, or abortions. Uh, I mean, there's some states that are talking about putting doctors and women in jail. Uh, it's it's getting crazy out there. It really is. And so women are talking about taking this back um, and putting it in, back in the hands of women the way it used to be. You know, we didn't have to rely on, you know, uh, you know, medical doctors before, uh, women had ways of dealing with this in ancient times. You know, we have just forgotten. Uh, and there were, you know, ways of dealing with this in the past. But it's, you know, it's spoken of in whispers. Um, so anyway, I'm not advocating it. I'm not a medical doctor. Um, so, you know, let me say that right off the bat here. Uh, but I think it's something, you know, I'm not saying women should do it. I don't know how safe it is. Uh, but I think it's something that uh, we should at least know is out there. Um, so look up the work of Carol Downer, um, menstrual extraction. She has been talking about this for a long time. And, um, you know, she's come under a lot of scrutiny. I mean, I know some women use herbs, and I don't know how reliable that is. Most women I know say it's not very reliable. Uh, but anyway, you look it up yourself, menstrual extraction, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things that uh, uh, a woman can do for herself if she so chooses. Uh, but as I said, I can't condone it uh, because I 
don't know enough about it. I'm not a doctor, but apparently this is one route some women are taking uh, as their options to um, a, a standard way of achieving an abortion is, um, you know, th- as those doors are being closed to them. Um, yeah, so I will leave that up to you uh, if you're interested. And um, one other thing while we're on the birth control topic, um, thank you, Pat. Uh, she sent this in, and uh, I, I appreciate uh, her looking for cool stuff for me to share with you. Uh, she sent me this uh, this article uh, titled, it, it's by uh, Asha Parker, Asha Parker, and uh, I don't recall uh, where she got this, uh, which which site it came from. But uh, anyway, it's titled, This Badass Lawmaker Wants to Regulate Viagra the Way Men Regulate Birth Control. Um, yeah, This Badass Lawmaker Wants to Regulate Viagra the Way Men Regulate Birth Control. Um, and re- and we have Asha Parker to thank. She reported on this. Uh, I'll read this briefly. Uh, after Representative Mia McLeod of South Carolina was assigned to a committee to investigate Planned Parenthood, she decided she'd had enough of senseless regulation of women's reproductive rights. McLeod first filed a bill to limit men's access to Viagra and other erectile dysfunction drugs in December in response to the many anti-abortion bills passed in the U.S., She didn't expect the bill to pass, but it did pass last Wednesday. So that would have been, um, I think, maybe the 20th of April, something like that. The bill will require men seeking Viagra to present a statement of approval from their sexual partners. (laughs) Um, uh, McLeod, uh, the representative, said, I quote, I just tried to make the requirements of my bill comparable to the requirements of women. I guess you could consider it tongue-in-cheek, but it's not a laughing matter for women who have been dealing with this issue for years. So, anyway, you can probably look that up if you want uh, more information. Um, Yeah, that's good news, I think. And let's see, do I have anything else here for you? Um, I think that's about it. Uh, That's about it for tonight. Uh, But I just want to remind you, if uh, you enjoy this kind of programming uh, that uh, you get here every week or the type of programming you've got tonight, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, Blog Talk is not free to hosts like me. Uh, And we see, uh, especially with this presidential election, more and more how vital independent media is becoming, you know, as the Main Street media, um, you know, has given up on journalistic integrity because of their corporate owners. Um, Most of the stuff they want us to know, uh, you know, really doesn't matter that much. Uh, So your contributions are needed and welcome. I know I ask every week. Uh, I hope you don't get tired of hearing me ask. but I pay out of my own pocket to give guests a platform to teach and share their wisdom. So if you would be so kind, I would really appreciate it if you would go to my website, karentate.com. Once you get there, go to the Goddess Store page. Uh, Down at the bottom, there are PayPal buttons, uh, and you can make uh, a contribution of any amount. And yes, I will still continue to do all the free things that, uh, that I have been doing all these years, this show, my Goddess Calling audiobook series, 
that you can find on YouTube. Just put uh, Goddess Calling audiobook series in the uh, search box on YouTube. Uh, there are also free meditations on my web site. There are free classes, free talks, free interviews. Um, so please enjoy it all and uh, share the liberation theology of the sacred feminine with your friends. Um, please keep sending me your emails uh, telling me, um, you know, what the show means to you. And, um, uh, you know, like I said, your gas in my tank. There's nothing more important than hearing from you that the show makes a difference uh, in your life. And uh, now I did promise uh, for your patience you would be rewarded with the opportunity for free stuff. Um, you can win a free copy of my book, Walking an Ancient Path, if you are the first three people to email me at karentate108 at ca.rr.com. Uh, tell me just a little bit about yourself and why you think you might like the book or maybe you want to give it to a friend or a loved one. Uh, send me your mailing address and you will be the winner. It's that simple. Yep. So um, I guess that's about it. Uh, remember to catch uh, all the wonderful shows here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine from the archives. Uh, you can listen from iTunes as well. And please don't uh, forget what Goddess teaches us. Um, you know, she is not an ATM machine. Um, there needs to be uh, reciprocity. Um, yeah, that's really important. We can't always just be takers. So what you nurture and tend to survives and thrives and what you neglect withers. So tonight um, I would like to just close with a quote from my book, Goddess Calling. Find your sacred roar. Become part of the evolution toward a new paradigm shift of caring, sharing, balance, equality, and justice. Yes, indeed. Please do. Well, that about does it uh, for tonight. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, thank you for listening every week. And um, I will go ahead and uh, close the show with uh, the way we started, with uh, Let the Way Be Open by Abigail Spinner McBride. And I thank her for use of her, uh, her wonderful music. She's an incredibly talented uh, artist out of Nevada. That's Abigail Spinner McBride. Please look for her if you're uh, looking to uh, add to your uh, musical um, library. So thank you, dear listeners. I will be back with you uh, next Wednesday. And uh, have a great weekend. And good night. Sing through my